Hi, I'm Marty Grizzani, and this is The Marty Grizzani Show. As a full-time real estate investor and business owner, I have a real fascination of finding the key principles for business success and personal development. This show is a reflection of my personal mission to find out what truly makes somebody successful in business and in life. We will find tools and tactics that they've used to reach those levels. If you're the type of person is not satisfied with average and you have a hunger for learning that will never cease, this show is for you. Welcome to the show. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, hey, let's get started right away. You know, hey, we got to get started. I know you're very busy. And you are very busy, but you don't really know if you're busy or not. Like this could be just, you know, this could be just you just go online and you talk shit about real estate all day long. And, uh, you know, it, you happen to have a good, a nice suit on and you might have a, a decent uh, little office. But this this guy's different. I know the guy I'm talking to right now is actually very busy. Actually, if you go online and you Google his name, this is how I know he's a really legitimate dude. If you Google his name. You'll see real estate law. You'll see five star rating and over fifty reviews. That doesn't happen, especially attorneys, Ron. That doesn't happen very often. Why? Why do you have five star rating and over fifty plus reviews? We we do good work, you know. I think all of the advice that we give our investors it's so different than working with other attorneys that they do feel I don't say obligated, but they feel compelled to to share it with other people because. We're investors too. And so we don't just give you the kind of case A and case B and, and that's your choice what to do. Well, the law could do this, the law could do that. What would you do, Ron, if it was your money? It's your property at stake. It's your situation. What would you do? And that's the kind of advice that we give that's that's so different than you know 99% of the other service professionals out there. We invest and we own commercial real estate and, and coming from residential as well. Yeah, that is different. I don't know any attorney that actively invests in real estate. I don't know any of them. I know they'll passively mm -hmm. do some investing, right? Uh, and 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 even that is small. Even that is a very small minority, uh, especially real estate attorneys. Like you do real estate, like don't you see how much money I make? Like you know how much an investor is making on this deal compared to your attorney fee? Like you'd think you would just be like, I'm, I'm, I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. I mean, why, how did you figure it out? Yeah, it's exactly that way. So I've been practicing law for uh, 13, 14 years. And it's exactly like that. We helped certain clients buy property. Uh, you know, we represent them on the buy side We we see what they paid for the dirt. Um, they don't do anything, right? Nothing magic. They they put some lipstick on the pig that there's nothing earth shattering. Um, and then we represent them on the sale a couple of years later. And I'm like, wow, the net to seller amount is is huge. And on commercial deals, it's really you know magnified because on a few hundred thousand dollar house, okay, great. Maybe you double your equity, triple your equity, but you're still making like 300 grand. I'm talking seeing people make 2.5 million, $2 million on a commercial deal that they held for two or three years. And I just saw them and I said, those guys are idiots. I, I, I mean, I'm just as dumb as they are. I have, I have a little bit of capital and, and I'm willing to risk it on these deals. And, and it's turned out, you know, really well, but yeah, it's exactly seeing that net to seller. The the principles, people that are 
putting it out there, they make the best returns. And real estate to me is the safest one. I'm not spending $300,000 on an Amazon drop shipping you know, storefront. This is tangible real estate. It's dirt. It's it's in a great location. Nobody can take that away from you, the location. I'm not subject to a change in Google's algorithm. Um, and it's not a business that, you know, kind of relies on, on people. So that's how I got started. Um, again, coming from a residential background before that, I was kind of content, just kind of stacking properties, right? I, I would buy a house every year. Um, and then at some point I had six SFR, uh, even with property management, it's it's a fair amount of work. These are all long-term tenants, but water heater breaks or the roof needs to be replaced or the you know, renewal rents. So there's a lot of decision-making with just six different properties, six roofs, six foundations. You, you know the story. Yeah. And I, I love that you ended up pivoting just like a lot of my listeners a lot of our listeners, right? When you go and you got to check out Ron's YouTube channel. It's it's really good. It's how I found him actually step by step on, uh, you know, how to be an expert in your sub market, which I want to talk to, to you about, but also just step by step industrial investing. There, there's not, there is a good amount out there, but not step by step from an attorney who also invests. So that, that was a separator. You know, you said something that was kind of funny too. I, th- I think we need to just go back. You said, uh, you know, these people are as, or just as smart as I am, right? So there's a pivot there, and there's a jump, I should say, not a pivot, but there's a jump from residential to commercial. And so many people don't do that because I think of limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you saw it firsthand, you know, you're, you're meeting these people, their clients, and you're like, I can do this too. You know, was there... Is there something you have, like an urgency about you? Because I mean, part of the show, I know a lot of my listeners have heard this, but in the show, I always talk about urgency and how urgency, I believe, is a is a is it really can't be taught, and it's something that I believe is like the different. Uh, it's like it's literally what differentiates somebody if they're going to like make it in entrepreneurship or or make it in any field. But you know, is there something to that? Do you think? Like, is there something to? Hey, I know this person's doing this. And they're not better than me. Why? Why is people? People see this all the time, and they don't do it. They see that there's people that are doing things online. You know, real estate investors that if they're in real estate and they're in a group and on Facebook, let's say in a Facebook group, and they see these people posting and like this person, I know this person. I had I was at that meetup, and they were hammered drunk. They were they were dumb. They didn't know how to talk to people, but they're doing it. Like, why aren't more people just going and doing things? You think? Yeah, it's 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 fear. You know, I think fear of the unknown is is such a powerful um, effect on human psychology. But for for me, yes, I think I do have a sense of urgency in the sense I I understand that my time is limited, and I love some of these anecdotes on Twitter and stuff. With like, if you're forty, you with you know ten million dollars, you. We all unanimously wish you were 30, even without the money, because you kind of have this experience of, okay, I believe I can make the money later, but you can't get your time back. And Mm -hmm. so in that vein, for me to invest with SFR for whatever the return is, it's a huge amount of my time that I don't think that's necessarily the highest and best use of my time. So I had, you know, coinciding with the, um, with the birth of our first child, our daughter, 
And that was the kind of wake up call or that was a sense of artificial urgency of, hey, you know, my, my kid is coming in. I want to spend time and, and, you know, support the family and that sort of thing. So I sold everything in just, I don't want to call it rash, but I sold everything in a fell swoop. And with our daughter coming in, that was a prompt to pivot into something more passive. Um, and I say, I, I hate saying like real estate's a passive investment, but I, I did want something with longer lease periods so I could reduce annual lease negotiations. I wanted something with less day-to-day obligations in terms of maintenance obligations. So with SFR, you've got gross leases. With multifamily, it's the same thing. You are absolute guarantor of the building, the structure, the toilets don't flush. That's your problem as a landlord. So I was looking at other asset classes, again, that I was familiar with through the law. But nowadays, I feel like I could have done this survey with just YouTube, looked up retail, looked up industrial, maybe even look up office, you know, that that's that's okay too. But pick an asset class that has longer lease terms. So we eliminate that, has triple net leasing. So you can push more of these obligations, repairs onto the tenant. And so you know, for for me, industrial was a great fit. I I, I think it fit with my life at the time. Um, it was had an extra benefit of I could deploy deploy more capital into a smaller deal to start. So, you know, if you have three hundred grand, you can pay cash for a house, I guess, but you're not really getting a lot of bang for your buck um, in terms of if you have to deploy a million dollars. Same sort of problem. But that's what industrial did for me was it solved a problem. And my urgency was my daughter being born and then pivoting into this asset class. And that was, you know, almost six years ago. And that's great. So why don't we talk about that first deal? So the first deal was you sold all your properties, your single family rentals, when he says SFRs, single family rental. And you, what'd you do? 1031 into an industrial building or how did that first deal go? And, and cause I know, I know your why now on industrial, right? Now that all makes sense why you went industrial, but what did that first deal look like? Yeah. Uh, no, no 1031 actually. And I have a video about it. I think 1031 is a big trap. I I think people get caught Mm. up in cost seg and 1031, but it forces you into a cycle that 1031 is not great, but I didn't 1031 because I had partners. Like I had one with my brother and, and, you know, we had uh, other people, but um, no, 1031. No, I just paid my taxes and, and, and took those gains and had a deal from off market where we all do partners equity. So that's kind of a secondary question that you haven't asked yet, but we fund all of our deals. We have five industrial deals now in DFW, but it's all partners equity. And so there's a group of us that we just kind of know each other. I think most of them, maybe half of them are lawyers, but other people are just in business and somebody gets a deal under contract. They'll they'll sign up for the debt. They'll share the models and they say, hey, I got this deal. It's $3 million. I'll raise a million dollars of equity. Or maybe back then, you know, it was like 800. Um, who, who wants to buy in? And so it's just an email list with 10 or 10 or 15 guys. And then people will respond and be like, yeah, put me down for two, put me down for three, put me down for 250. And and that's how we do our fundraising um, internally. So that was my first deal where I wasn't the the you know sponsor, so to speak. I wasn't PGing the debt. I, I didn't put it under contract, but I was, you know, able mm. to help and contribute and 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 you know, to this day be very active um in that regard. But uh, yeah, that's it's just friends and who you know but to your point people are at these meetups there are people that are doing the deals that you want to do 
you just got to go meet them and just go tell them what what value you can add or you know whether it's money or expertise or boots on the ground just be very clear that hey i want to do x that's what you're doing now what's the best way that i could either partner or contribute to something so that way you get learning yeah that's cool so that exposed you to the you know doing your own deals through being a part of seeing other people probably do these types of deals and then you you kind of pulling the trigger on was it like being a limited partner then like i, I or you're you're kind no, of i mean i don't like, like a limited mix. partner because yeah. of the the legal category that kind of puts you in we're under the irs we're all active members so you know we're all on the operating agreement directly um nobody is passive tax category but um you know that's the trade off of doing partners equities everybody is call it equal mm. but there's only one person signing on the debt or is everybody signing on the debt in situations like that uh it depends um so it's typically like i think back then it was like 25 if you own 25 or 30% then you had to sign on but we would always structure it so if people were at that 29% or 30% we would just put them at 29.5 so you don't have to sign on to the debt. This is important, guys, because the deal we just did, the you know, it's a th- it's a bit it's a good thing for the person that's going to be bringing the money to not have to sign on the debt. They don't want to have to sign yep. on the yep. debt. And 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 maybe they don't care, but you know, they usually will, but then you have to give more. You have to do something if they're going to do that, right? Yeah, and... you have a higher responsibility to to follow up and say, hey, did you send the tax returns to the lender? Hey, did you send this? Have we gotten any emails from the lender? Because now they 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 care more. Obviously, they care about their cash, but they may just say, you handle it. It's your debt. Um, and so, again, it's it's kind of weird how lending is very cyclical, just like real estate the lenders all act like a herd. And once they start moving in a direction, whether it's positive or negative, they all just follow and they they mm. exacerbate it and they make it worse uh, depending what perspective you're on. But they'll just keep piling on to be more aggressive on aggressive lending, which is beneficial to borrowers. But like today, we're in the opposite. So the lenders are retreating and everybody's scared of, of lending. So you have an opposite problem right now in commercial Lenders don't want to lend because their buddy's not lending. So they get scared. This bank's not lending. And so it takes real guts from a bank to offer terms that that vary or break from the herd um, in this type of market. Yeah, that that's funny because it, it's it's true, right? Because you know, booms or recessions sometimes can have like the self-fulfilling prophecy of like you know what I mean? It's just like Yes, if things are going really well, think you know sometimes sometimes things go well, right? Just because people are in that positive mindset, right. you can have that. And the same thing with banking and lending. Like if 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 everybody's thinking that things are going really well, things will go really well. And if then yeah, and it can go. Obviously, there's more to that. But yes, there's, Howard there's Marks has a has a, a great book. Um, he's the founder of Oak Tree, um, and mastering the market cycle. He talks a lot about this, but. For me, it was something that I witnessed kind of firsthand through 08 and then 2013. Um, I wasn't investing on commercial deals, but my company was. I was general counsel for a real estate developer. And it was crazy how our exact deals were presented for a committee and wouldn't get approved or would get approved for a very low LTV. And the same deal in 2021 or 20, you know, even 2019 was getting greenlit 
at like double the LTV. But it's to me and to us as the borrower, the projects were identical. The economy and the location, it's in Texas, yada, yada. It's all about the same. But it was the banker's perceived risk that they were willing to be aggressive to win the loan. Because think about the, the credit officers, their job is to push out money. You know, They make money by doing loans. And so they get more and more aggressive under the the belief that the economy is doing great, this loan cannot fail, they're going to be able to exit, blah, blah, blah. So we're willing to take a little bit less margin because it's just guaranteed to work. And people successively do that until they lend out too much and then the risk exceeds what the return is, is expected value and they start to lose money. And then that causes the opposite rush. But yeah, absolutely. I think boom times create recessions. And that's a really important concept that you have to understand in real estate, it's cyclical because the more aggressive people get on this belief of, well, the last 10 deals haven't failed. So let's take a little bit less margin and more risk. And we'll just keep doing it until you reach a tipping point where somebody does lose their money. And then it goes down the opposite direction of, oh, we're so scared. Oh, we're so scared. Um, until you get to the bottom of the recession, which you only know in hindsight. And that's when lenders and people are buying at a very low basis. Uh, lenders are lo very low LTV, and so it makes more cushion for me as a as a borrower to operate. And then people look at my property and say, "Well, Ron just made a ton of money. Let's go buy something similar too." And the lenders say, "Well, that loan paid off, so let's make a little bit more aggressive loan." And then the start cycle starts over again. But it's really powerful, I think, once you realize what you just said. And I think it's it's you know not maybe not guaranteed. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Mm, no doubt about it. Ryan, let's say you, you did this, right? Let's say, so I want you to give a step-by-step. -step. Let's say you move to Rochester tomorrow, okay? And you wanted to do what you're doing in Rochester, in Dallas, in Rochester, yep. okay? What would you do to become an expert in, 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 in a commercial real estate today if you had to move and you had to build a portfolio? Great question. Um, full disclosure, I do have a little bit of bias with the region. You know, I, I went to Cornell uh, for undergrad, uh, graduated back in 2006, but my wife also went to Cornell. We, we met at Cornell um, and she's from Syracuse. So I have a little bit of central New York, Western New York knowledge because um, I love it when I say, oh, you know, I went to school upstate and people are like, like Westchester, or all I'm like, no, there's a whole state that people yeah. just think of New York, New York City and upstate as uh, Poughkeepsie. And I'm like, Poughkeepsie, no, yes. <laughs> but um, you just yeah, made so a lot of fans. You made a lot of fans just saying that. And yeah, you know, that's an unfair advantage, right? So that use, but we all can use our But it's still advantages. new to me. I've, I've never exactly. lived in Rochester. I don't know anything about the economy, but I know general stereotypes about the region. And and for better, for worse, you, you have to do this. Uh, anywhere, which is identify what are the strongest industries of Rochester? Where are jobs coming in or where is their job growth or at least stability? Because we've heard about kind of this decline of, of Western New York uh, manufacturing along um, along the Great Lakes. And, and I get that. And I think that's very true. But the rumors of the demise, again, are always greatly exaggerated. So Rochester no has survived, I think, better than other manufacturing cities. So that's what I think I would focus in on. I would understand what makes Rochester strong. Um, is it medical 
you know, obviously you guys got a great hospital system. You have um, the schools, you have some of the, uh, um, was it SUNY, right? Or, and so you have some of that education, but identify which industries have maintained demand and which ones have not, because you want to avoid picking an, an investment that I say, go all in, you know, you've got to really be committed, but you can't buy a bunch of properties that don't have demand on the tenant side. And that's one thing that I think residential people, they know intuitively when they go in, like people need housing. I, I, I get it. That's, that's a simple concept, but in commercial, you have to understand your tenant's business. And so if I was going to do industrial in Rochester, I have to figure out what do the tenants need? There's still people living there. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people. Okay. So one possible solution is like flex contracting garages, which are 1500 to 2000, 2500 square feet. They typically have one roll-up door and one office and a bathroom, um, but they're very small spaces. You can, you can rent them out to AC repair guys, landscaping companies, electricians, you know, plumbers, smaller trades that to me have demand based on residential housing because you know people you know still live there and if they have jobs they're going to need to fix their houses they're going to have you know landscaping work done um, driveways recoded asphalt types of things and so those residential roofs will provide demand for a a smaller industrial product that i think could be very lucrative you you've got to again real estate is very much a numbers game so there's probably a price that I'm willing to pay for any building like that I described in Rochester, but it's a function of the income. It's a function of the demand. I think, okay, the demand is there over long-term. I'm always going to be at least 80% full. Okay. You take that as an assumption. Based on the market rents today and, and where the rents are going, what does that translate to income? Uh, what type of debt service can I afford if I can get five-year fixed debt? And how much equity do I need to put in? And what is my acceptable return on equity? Because I'm going to want at least you know a 10, 12% return on equity, cash on cash for this type of deal. And that will back into the purchase price that you can pay for it. And you just got to you just got to find all the properties and I think the good thing about Rochester is if you like an area, a certain neighborhood that is either uh, high, highly residential, a uh, higher income, because you know that you can't build that product in a poor neighborhood. Just no offense, but like people making thirty thousand a year, they don't even if they own a house, they don't spend a lot to maintain the house and and to improve the house. So if you find a neighborhood, you can eliminate seventy five percent of Rochester. Focus on those buildings, and I would do a comprehensive audit. I would look at every single building, and I would plot it on a spreadsheet, um, put all the pertinent information. How many square feet is it? How many acres of land? How much parking? How much storage? Is it fenced? Uh, what their market rate is? What their occupancy? And you can just do that by calling. If you don't have time, if you're a doctor and you're super rich, hire a VA hire an overseas VA, give them a very clear script where they pretend to ghost call and be like, you know, Hey, Marty, uh, I'm a, a snowplow and, and lawn company. I need a place to park two F-150 trucks and a snowplow uh, in the off season and lawnmowers in the winter. Do you guys have availability? If so, how many square feet and how much does it cost? What type of lease terms do you offer? That's it. Those three questions. If 
you know, you can give them a little bit of script of if they if they ask you what's your company, you just say, well, you know, I don't want to share that right now because I'm in a lease at another building and I don't want you to tip off my landlord. You can just say that, and again, you're you're they're selling the space to you. And so most landlords will accept that and they'll tell you the answer. They'll tell you what their lease rates are and what their vacancy is because they may be 100% full or they may want you to come in and take a tour and you say, yeah, 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 you know, let me talk to my boss um, and, you know, we can discuss it. But you do that and you call every single competitive facility and you have this incredible proprietary data set that is complete because that's that's the most important thing um, is that industrial has a lot fewer data points. It's not like residential or even maybe multifamily, but multifamily, you're competing against houses. So it's it's hard to capture what every single rental on the market is. But industrial, there may only be 15 of these buildings that I described. I mean, that's, that's a couple of weeks. That's two weeks worth of work. Honestly, if you're super aggressive, you can just bang it out in like three days, wait for people to call you back. Um, some of them will have it online. You put a note if they have a website or not. Um, you can look at Google Maps, look at the street view. What does it look like on the outside? Is it clean? Uh, are there a lot of trucks parking there? Is it messy? Does the building look dilapidated? And you will have more confidence after doing that type of you know, cold calling or th that type of research to buy a building because you have you can plot out you know, square footage, price per foot, price on rent, price, all these data points. And then when you see a building that is newer than the other ones, that has more acreage, extra acreage in the back, has tons of parking, and they're only 70% full because for whatever reason, they're doing a bad job marketing, you know, that's the building you want to buy. And you make a great offer on it. And, and you know, those situations, the seller is like, yeah, my building's only 70% leased and I have to pay so much to mow this extra yard space. Um, that's how you get a great deal. And that's what I would do because I wouldn't work with a broker. Uh, the brokers don't care about these small deals. I mean, let's call it sub, sub 3 million, sub 5 million. Brokers don't really care. It's switching a little bit because they're starving now. So they are taking on smaller deals. But um, in general, it's a lot more persuasive to tell in smaller markets to reach out directly to the owner and say, look, hey, let's both save on brokers. We hate brokers. Yeah, you hate brokers. Me too. I hate paying commission. <laughs> let's do a deal if you want to sell because I'll buy at this price and and you can get a lot of traction. And again, just be very candid with the owner and ask him questions. What's it like? How long have you owned it? What's been the hardest challenge? And you know, do you like this? Are you old? Are you, you know, do you want to retire to Florida? That is how you get off market, you build rapport, but you're really armed with the data. And I would say there's no shortcut if I was transplanted in Rochester tomorrow. I, I'm not going to go to some REI meeting. I'm not going to ask a broker to do this work for me because I'll tell you, I guarantee the data sets don't exist. Nobody else has it. So you have to create the data on the type of building that you want to buy. And this is totally applicable if you want to do medical office building. You know, MOBs are also very popular and, and, and maybe that's what makes sense where, you know, the, the tenants, you know, doctors that are complaining that their rents are going up by 10%, which is a lot for a medical office building because there's no supply. And then you say, okay, what does it cost to convert an older office building to a suitable medical office building? And would somebody pay me rent? at those inflated or you know inflated minus 10% rates because 
that's another thing. But you have to do the same type of survey. You have to identify where's the hospitals that we want to be around. What are all of the medical office buildings surrounding that office? Call each one of them. What's their what's their vacancy? What's their rents? What are they asking? And then you have information about confident, you know, you have confident information that if I were to buy an adjacent regular office building and put in 200 grand to make it a medical office building, could you get those tenants? But there's no other way to know which which building to buy unless you know all of that market. So if you guys, if you took that in, I would re-listen to that a few times because that might be the most actionable steps that we've got on this show. And sometimes you get nuggets around, but that was a filet. That was a juicy filet that you gave. I'm taking notes. I can't wait to re-listen to that. I've never done that. And I like to think that I'm I'm I'm, you know, solid at what I do. So that's really, really good. It actually makes me think of um now Ron would know this and anyone on Twitter would know this if you're in the real estate Twitter world, but like the Bob Knackle map room, you know, I think about, you know, you pick that spot and he you has just go a, bananas. Yeah, he picked a big market. I mean, he bit sure. off a huge bite of data, which was like every building in Manhattan. It's it's insane, right? But the messaging is still the same. And my advice is to narrow your market either geographically to say, I know every single SFR in my block or asset type because if tenants are filtering by asset type, they're probably going to search the whole city. They're going to search the whole area, maybe along a couple of highways, but there won't be a lot of buildings. And so at the end of the day, Bob Knackle can do 3000 buildings or something like that, that fit his criteria, right? He doesn't have parking garages. He doesn't have, I don't know what, you know, I guess residential buildings. He doesn't have those. So he's, he has eliminated some, but you have to create your own proprietary data to give you confidence, to give you actual numbers. Um, and that's just going to help you, you know, in negotiation, you're going to have confidence on the offering price, um, your expected lease up. Uh, lenders, uh, investor partners, everybody's going to benefit from your confidence about the numbers. And it you know, it does come down to the quality of it. But the key, I think, is starting small. With industrial or any type of commercial, really, you can create a comprehensive survey of every single property. That's what's great. With, with residential and multifamily, it's a little bit harder because there's just so much product and you really are competing against call it a hundred, a hundred other sites or something like that. Versus industrial, you could do it down to 30. Medical office, you could probably look at 20 buildings and you'd know every single detail about those 20 buildings. You can determine if there's enough market demand for one more. Uh, two things. You seem to also know quite a bit about office and going from you know, maybe that meh office to medical office. Is that another thing you're looking at? I so I've done a couple of videos on it. I I think that office represents the biggest risk reward proposition right now because it is almost uniformly shunned. And when that happens, that creates an opportunity because the pricing is just so low. Um repurposing it is a big risk. Uh just you know, capital, although with medical office, right? Don't get me wrong, you can 
give a proposal to a tenant who will sign a lease. They will sign a pre-lease with you. You know, I think you need it under contract. You need the building under contract. You need full architecture plans and maybe a rendering or two. But people will sign a contract with you that you can take to the bank and you can say, hey, Mr. Bank, will you lend me you know, all this money to buy and refurbish this building? Because if I can execute and I can deliver on this timeline, this credit or this you know, pretty wealthy tenant will, will start paying rent. And, and banks routinely do this. Um, you're still going to need a lot of your own equity. You're still going to need to execute the, the redevelopment plan. But the people that do pull that off, you know, are going to be buying a building for two million bucks, putting five hundred thousand in, and then creating an asset worth five million bucks. Um, and you know, we've seen it in office too, like Dallas. I'm I'm in Dallas, Texas right now, but the market is very weird because Class A and new construction is fully leased with zero mm-hmm. concessions, and they're occupied and they're booming and they're hustling and they're just you know what office should be. On the other hand, cheap office is also booming because people are looking to be the cheapest office. Their employees aren't coming in. They just need a space to meet. So they're downsizing and just going for something cheap. It's this class B in the middle, which is not super nice and not the cheapest that's struggling the most. So how do you avoid the middle, the dreaded, boring, just ho-hum? Like, oh, I want to buy this office building two blocks from this shopping center, but it's not, you know, a great location, doesn't have great ceiling high, doesn't have great windows. Why are you going to buy it? Like, what's the plan to lease it up? Because a lot of people are competing in that middle market. And I think with, with COVID, what it's done is that dead middle zone has expanded and gotten really aggressive in terms of a, a gulf. If you're the cheapest, absolute rock bottom cheapest, you're, you're actually kind of full. Like, you, you don't worry about tenants. If you're the top of the market, you're full and, and you're doing well. It's just that middle, that death valley, death zone. Um, so you have to figure out how do you buy a building in the death zone, I think, and, and, and pivot it to something that is in demand. And whether that's medical office or just class A office, um, you got to figure out a way to get tenants in. Love it. Uh, now, you don't use brokers often to find stuff, but when you do buy things, and there's vacancy. Do you use brokers to fill the space, or how yeah, do you absolutely. advertise space? So, so critical distinction. You know, commercial real estate is a team sport. When you're doing SFR or even to some degree multifamily, you are the accountant, you're the lawyer, you're doing contracts, you're you're reviewing, you know, handyman scope of work. All of these tasks um, usually fall to just the owner, and you got to wear a lot of hats. Commercial is a team sport and you're going to really need people that are experts in their field. So yes, we use leasing brokers and this this may not and often is not the same as the broker who sold you the property, right? Those guys are investment sales or um, they're doing, you know, tenant rep type stuff, um, but they're not leasing brokers on behalf of a landlord. It's a, it's just a very different skill set and connections when they're dealing with tenants as opposed to people who understand, you know, the cap rates and, um, you know, debt pricing, those people are different capital markets guys. I appreciate that. Cause that's, um, you know, something we're doing now is making those relationships because we were so off market focused that we never even bothered to make friends, I guess, with brokers. But I've, I've realized that over the last two years, 
it is it's absolutely a team sport and uh and everybody can win and everybody can add value and and they have a different value than i can you know 10 15 20 years of tenant reps or of being a rep for you know tenants it's it's a different it's a different expertise than I have. And I don't even want, you know, and then, and then again, you go, then you go, well, I don't even really want that expertise. They, they can have it and you, you'll, you'll pay them that's for right. that, that's right. you know? And, and I think that, I think that's important. Um, last couple of things you, uh, you're on Twitter, you're, you're on YouTube. Why did you decide to go and do, because some people I know want to do stuff like that. They they're in my group or they're people listening. They're like, I, I want to, I want to get my name out there or I you know what, what was it for you? They're like, I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to start recording this because that takes a lot of gumption. <laughs> and I know, uh, cause I'm doing it. I started back in COVID. This was like after the lockdown, I had already started my law firm. I was already investing and in doing this stuff, but I was taking a survey of different social media and I wanted a way to reach out to clients. And I was trying to do like webinars and, and try to get people to, to tune in and, and zoom. And that was not working. But I've liked YouTube um, and Facebook, I think was kind of like my number two. I can build a, you know an audience on Facebook, but I liked YouTube uh, for that kind of engagement and the fact that you know the videos stay up there forever and people can just keep watching it. And the advice that we give is still pretty relevant, um, you know, even a couple years later. But Twitter came, I guess, later, uh, ever since Elon bought it people that I know were like, oh, you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on X. It's it's changed because it used to be your feed was just filled with stuff you didn't want. And Twitter now, I think in, you know, call it the last 11 months has become a curated feed to where I really only see commercial real estate. I mean, I wouldn't mm-hmm. mind some some cat memes every now and then, but I don't get it. I, I just don't get fed that type of content. Um, and it's not trying to trigger me. It's not trying to you know, clickbait too much. Um, but I just get commercial real estate, which is, which is great. It's a very focused educational and and useful feed, but yeah, that's, I've been doing YouTube for three years, three and a half years. Um, it's a great source of presenting what's unique about you. And that's kind of my advice for people that are thinking about, Hey, I want to do this, uh, you know, following, I want, I want thousands of followers. I've, you know, I've got videos with like almost a hundred thousand views, you have to figure out what makes you unique. And I don't mean unique that like, okay, you're a snowflake. You know, your mom says you're very special. That's that's true. But you've really got to emphasize why people should listen to you or, or follow you because of something that you're doing differently. Um, and it can just be your journey. I mean, that's, that's, that's a perfectly valid thing too. But you've, I think you really just have to lean into what makes you unique. I'm an SFR investor and I've got three doors and I'm, and I do flips every now and then. And I live in Rochester. I don't know the way I described it doesn't sound interesting. Um, if you own a landscape and snow plow, snow removal company, and you show that during the day job. And then, you know, on my free time, I use money from that business to invest in real estate. And here are my mix of, you know, crazy snow jobs and, and, you know, six feet of snow in this, and here's a pile of snow that lasts until June. Like that's kind of interesting. And then you segue it to, you know, well, this is what I do during the day, but then I love investing. And here are the craziest or the, you know, coolest things about Rochester real estate. And, and it's hard. I think you really have to pick something that is interesting because 
just again, candidly, like there's a lot of crappy neighborhoods in Rochester with older crappy houses that, you know, they rent for the 1% rule. It's like, okay, but that's could be Dayton, Ohio. That could be Cincinnati. That could be Iowa. I don't really care unless you're a very creative or engaging person, right? There's some personalities that are just funny and they really resonate when they say, you know, like Marty, I want to help you. Like, what are your problems? I have this, how can I help you? There are some people that can do that and convey it through video, but otherwise um, you just got to trust the process and post a lot of content and try to improve content by watching or looking at your data and say, well, which videos did well? Uh, let me do more of that type. And and then just at the end of the day, just post whatever you want. I mean, I'm just some guy on the internet, but I post what I like. I will say yeah. this uh, without a doubt. I have a lot of fun doing every single video and whether it's like Easter eggs or, you know, inside jokes for Twitter, um, I would. And in the beginning, I will post videos that had like 10 views and I will do the same video today or three years ago. If it gets 10 views or if it gets a thousand views, I will still do it because because uh, I enjoy it. And I think I think it does make me a better investor to to think about the you know, the economics of my deals and, you know, questions that people will comment or something. So I agree. I think, uh, number one, and this is more for myself than anyone else, but is I like to, you know, you do it for yourself, right? Right. You do it for yourself. And then the other reason is I do it for, and I know you have children some point, maybe they'll watch it. And hope maybe they'll get something from it or they'll just laugh at dad. Either way, it's good, yeah. right? So either way, it's a win. So, but I do believe that by posting, you are a better investor because you have more to lose and you have, you're putting yourself out there, right? That's is what I mean. And when you do that, it opens yourself up to people can post and comment and share and all those different things. And so you got to be really good and you got to care. And if, you know, not that everybody that posts uh, does care, but I think the good ones do. And I think the, you know, the ones that are going to be here the longest do. And I think that's what matters. And so with all that being said, you can find Ron. Ron, there's a couple of places people can find you, but go ahead. Tell tell exactly how to find your Twitter handle and your YouTube show because they're both unbelievable. Yeah, just uh, I would say search in YouTube for Ronald Rohde Law, R-O-H-D-E-L-A-W um, should pop up there. And Twitter is uh, Rohde88, so R-O-H-D-E-88. And give me a follow. I try to tweet about the same kind of stuff, a little bit more race car um, content, but um, it's what I like. So I love it. Ron, thanks for coming on, brother. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Take care, guys. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Marty Grizzani Show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us an honest rating and review. If you're on Spotify, make sure you follow us for weekly episodes. 